good God, and we've come to stand before you and to listen, to open ourselves up, to sit at your feet and to listen. Because we know all our life is moving toward a future where we will stand before your throne. And yet we sing today with great joy and confidence those words that robed in Christ's righteousness alone, faultless we will stand before the throne. Help us fix our eyes on Jesus today in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. Well, I have to tell you this morning, I'm a little bit disappointed. Uh, I told you last week of the struggle I was having with Luke 16 and invited emails for help, but alas, I got no emails. So if, if this sermon really stinks, that's on you. So turn with me to Luke 16. Um, truly, this was one of the most difficult passages I felt like uh, for me to wrestle with ever, really, in, in just reading Scripture, um, until something clicked, and I realized where the difficulty was in understanding the parable. It's really not in the logic of this parable, the parable of the unjust steward, we'll call it, um, it's not an understanding the logic that holds it all together, which is actually really f- simple and straightforward. Uh, the difficulty is in accept- accepting the judgments of this parable, which confront us with, with God's way of seeing things that is completely different than, than certainly social convention or conventional wisdom or our inclination to see things uh, because God sees things with a kind of radical realism of how he's going to work his redemption out in a sinful world. Uh, a, a, A world of people, all of whom he loves, but none of whom love one another like he calls us to love. And continue to judge one another in the way he calls us not to. And calls us rather to to allow him to take up his rightful seat on the throne. uh, And to be our lawmaker and to be our judge. So Luke 16, I, I think the key that unlocks everything is just beginning with a kind of assumption. Uh, that, that comes from basic claims in Scripture. And the assumption is that God is righteous in all his judgments and that we are unrighteous in all of ours. Now that is why this parable is hard to embrace, accept, understand. Because that's a simple truth, is it not? But it's a very difficult truth to embrace and believe. But I think keeping that in mind as we read this parable is really going to, to help us all see it for what it is. So, so read with me, and God help us. So Jesus, now remember the context. This is still, I'll just rip my Bible. This is still the, the, the same room that Jesus filled with the parable of the prodigal son. Remember who's in that room? It's Pharisees and scribes tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus, the Messiah, 
who the Pharisees have very specific expectations for, and the, the tax collectors and sinners really hope that the Messiah doesn't come because now they're on enemy lines. And Jesus is saying, everyone's welcome to the table. And the Pharisees and scribes, it says, grumbled because Jesus was receiving tax collectors and sinners and eating with them. And so he gives them the parable of the prodigal son, the three parables that lead to the parable of the prodigal son. And then he says this, he turns to his disciples, but the Pharisees are still there, which is what will get brought up after he gives this parable to his disciples. So he's kind of turned away from the Pharisees and now he's speaking to us is who he's speaking to. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager or a steward, okay? And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, already, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Didn't we just read a parable about a wayward person who is wasting someone else's possessions, right? The parable of the prodigal son. And remember, we were surprised by the father's judgment on the prodigal by the end of that parable, that yes, he was guilty, but no, he's not condemned. And there's the gospel in miniature. Yes, you're guilty, but no, you're not condemned. Because God does have immovable standards, and yet God's grace is sufficient for us. And that his grace is more powerful than our sin. We're just not strong enough to sin our way outside of God's grace. He calls us to repent and recognize that no matter how far it gets, no matter how deep in the pigsty we go. And so this steward, manager, was, was wasting the master's possessions. And so the master called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So he got canned, right? And the manager said to himself, just like the younger son said to himself when he's in the pigsty, right? So this is a, these are called parables of crisis, by the way, because they lead us into some kind of human crisis, and the decision that's made in the context of that crisis is supposed to tell us something about how we are to make decisions in the crisis of judgment that we're all under in our sin, okay? And so he says to himself, he's got to make some kind of decision. What am I going to do now that I got canned? What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. One of those guys, right? I've decided what to do so that when, I, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. I... That translation, lots of oil. Hundreds, a hundred measures of oil, this is talking into the year's wages. So how much, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. So what is he doing? He's slashing debts, baselessly. First of all, it's not his debt to slash the, 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 those who owe him. And he doesn't have a job anymore. He and yet he's going, why is he doing it? He says, so that they might receive me into their houses. And so then he says to another, how much do you owe? Uh, he says, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. 
The master commended the dishonest, dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? The master commended, not condemned, commended the dishonest manager, the unjust steward, for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. This is Jesus talking. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, so get the picture. This is, again, Jesus created a really despicable person, just like he did with the prodigal son and the offense against the father. This is the, this is the least respectable kind of man you could describe. He's not strong enough to dig, but he's ashamed to beg. And so he's going to continue to do what he was doing and what got him fired in the first place, which is mishandling the master's possessions because he's too lazy and he's too proud. And then Jesus says, look at his example. Do the same thing. What? Yeah, that's, I'm still waiting for emails. I'll probably get some after today. <clears throat> and then he continues. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. This is the key. He's still addressing the parables now. He just told that parable to the disciple, but now he's turned to the Pharisees. Why? Because they have a problem with the lesson of the parable. Raise your hand if you didn't have a problem with the lesson of the parable. So now he turns from type talking to the disciple in us to the Pharisee in all of us. Because all of us have problems with that parable. And so uh, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money... Heard all of these things. It's just like when Judas, remember when it says that Judas, uh, that, that the woman poured out her alabaster jar of ointment and washed Jesus' feet with it, and Judas condemned her essentially, but then John points out, I think John, that it was because he's a lover of money. Not because he cared about the poor, which was his protest, but he was ultimately, it's because he was a lover of money. And in the same way, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him and he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God the law and the prophets were until John since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Last paragraph, which seems so out of place until you come back to the foundation. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the word of God. Now, first of all, let me say, uh, I don't know how far we're going to get today. I told my wife to put a timer up so I could see, and we're just going to stop before you stop listening, hopefully. Uh, because I want, there's a lot to unpack here. But, uh, and, and actually, I do know when we finish this parable, the last sermon on this little section is going to be all about that last part about divorce and marriage. It will be a sermon on divorce, or it will be a sermon on marriage and what it actually is, because I don't think we know what it is in this country, by and large. But, but we're going to focus on this aspect of, of the text we read for now. And let me, do, let me just take a moment to frame this underlying situation here in terms that I think everyone will understand. Um, a while back, this has actually been years back, um, but I remember it because I wrote about it. Uh, but but I was, it was one of those nights I was attempting to be a good and righteous father and husband. And so, and it was raining because it's in Washington and dark out. And it's the conditions where my fathering is stretched to the limit. I'm a better father in the summer, okay, because I can be outside. We have to get cooped up and do little things inside. It's hard for me. But that's what I did because I'm a good and righteous man, okay. <laughs> I sat down with three of my kids at the uh, little round table in our kitchen with a big stack of coloring books, a big jar of markers, and my humane attempt to tranquilize them while my wife was cooking dinner, in this case. And uh, we found that tranquilizer guns were, weren't allowed, so we have to try these other means. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, and each of them chose the book they wanted, and surprisingly, it was without incident. Everybody was happy. No one was coveting his neighbor's coloring book at first. So I grabbed from the leftover stack a Star Wars book, and I was happy with that. Uh, and so I opened, began coloring my Ewok village, and all was well in the world. I was being brought back to my childhood. It was wonderful, and it lasted almost two minutes. Uh, because suddenly, all hell broke loose. And I mean that in the biblical sense, so settle down, all right? Because <laughs> just as they were... Uh, looking for, for the picture that was just right in their coloring book, they started seeing the pictures in their neighbor's coloring books and getting FOMO about it, all right? So, so every one, last one of them began demanding and defending. And, and it, it, just, it turns out they all just happened to want to color their neighbor's picture in their neighbor's coloring book. And, uh, and you would think that this would be the perfect occasion for a trade agreement, right? Nobody wants to color their own. Everybody wants to color each other's. And so trade, right? This is the basis of a stable economy. Supply and demand could be equal here. Uh, you'd think that, but you'd be wrong. These were not the conditions that led to a peaceful trade agreement. Because it turns out they all wanted to color the page from their neighbor's coloring book, but they didn't want any of their neighbor's coloring from theirs. It's like coveting your neighbor's wife, but not wanting your neighbor to covet yours, right? Doesn't make sense, does it? At any rate, even, even if they, I say theirs in air quotes, because even if they were theirs, how reasonable is that? You know? To argue over 
I mean, it, it, was, it was a perfect opportunity. But, but as you can predict, the, these, the trade negotiations quickly devolved into war. And they all started making absolutely baseless claims to property rights and ownership. And, uh, and then one of them, whose name will remain omitted to protect the guilty, she grabbed my color. Oops. Well, there you go. <laughs> Public shaming is effective. I'm just kidding. This, and this was years ago. They've, they've all grown up from this. But she, she began grabbing pages and, and, and birthrights and yelling and demanding. And then she started scribbling all over everybody's coloring books and all over my arms with her smelly good chemical markers. And, uh, and so um, finally, uh, you could imagine what's happening in my mind and heart throughout all of this. Parents, you understand. Finally, I just stood up and declared, you're all guilty, they're all mine, go to your room. The coloring books are mine. The coloring books are mine. And so I got their cut those coloring books and I threw them in the wood stove where the worm does not die and the fire does not burn out. <laughs> That's just a joke. Okay, you get the difference though. Now every parent of more than one child understands this tension. It's the balance between loving each of your children and loving all of your children, right? My relation with each of my children is fundamentally different than my relation to all of my children. My relation to each of them is as father. But my relation to all of them sometimes has to be judge and lawmaker, right? If I'm going to be a good father to each of them, I have to establish justice for all of them. And that means sometimes I have to interfere with their relationships to protect them from the injustices, not simply from their brothers and sisters' actions, but from those baseless and biased judgments that are always bent towards self. Now, I'm not talking about little kids anymore. I'm talking about all of us. This is still true of all of us. It's our baseless and biased judgments in a world we really, as disciples, confess and profess that God alone is judge and God alone is lawmaker over our lives. But it's, it's the baseless and, and biased judgments that are opposed to that principle from which all the actions of our life proceeds. This is true of all of us. So understand God's predicament here, that he loves all of us, uh, and he loves each of us. So what he has to do is establish a world. Oh, we'll go back here. He has to establish a world where there's justice for all and mercy for each. And that makes for a very messy world. That's the world we live in. Uh, my love for my children is the basis of my desire for each of them to love one another. But how many parents live with broken hearts over kids who can't be reconciled? Over the, the kids who will not allow love and forgiveness to flow through the family. And so, so it is with God who looks down at us, one human family that continues to judge one another, fight one another, and claim our moral right to do so with our self-justifying hearts that Jesus intends to condemn in this parable. This parable is not about bringing our actions before his throne. 
This parable is about bringing all of our judgments before his throne. Our, we are brought into trial as judges and lawmakers in this parable. And you see, this is what God has given us his law. And, and he gave it because he, because he wants to establish just in, justice among all of us, brothers and sisters. And not even God can force us to obey his law because God's highest principle for us is our freedom. And love by nature is free. And so you see, he has to set stern limits on, on human life, lest we, you know, everyone does what's right in their own eyes, which tends to happen anyway, doesn't it? Um, but so if, if we're not going to love on one another, can insist on going against God's law um, and, and bringing sin into his good world, you can understand why a father sometimes just has to stand up Stoke the fire of judgment and send out some warnings to, to his kids. And that's what Jesus does in this parable. That's what he does. Jesus steps into our disputes and our judgments, our courtrooms, and, and calls not only our actions into, into judgment, but, but calls our judgment into judgment. You can imagine, if you want a vivid picture of it, imagine all of us have stormed the capital of the kingdom of God. And when he comes to squelch this, you know, rebel revolution, what he doesn't bring into judgment is simply the fact that we've stormed his capital. What he brings into judgment is the notion that we would relate to God like we do our own governing leaders. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. Thank God we live in a democracy. But in relation to God, we don't live in a democracy, we live in a kingdom. And a democracy in the kingdom of God is mutiny. Nor is the kingdom of God a republic. God is not our representative. He is our representative. Right? We, sorry, we are his representative. That's how it works. In a, in a republic, the, the ruler, the leaders represent the interests of the people. In a kingdom, the people represent the interests of the king. And that's what we are. And so, the plea then for all of us, dearly beloved, is to get off the throne. To get off the throne. I took too long to set that up, but, but we're stopping in a proper time. Okay, that timer's going to govern this, all right? So first, we're going to talk about the four characters, and I think we'll probably get to the moralizers. But there's the masters, the manager, the moralizers, and the ex-marrieds. I don't know how to qualify them. Remember what Jesus said. The ex-ex-marrieds, maybe? Uh, but I assure you, there's grace for all, and we all fit in the same category in the end. So first, the manager, okay? Or sorry, the master, the master. And the, the, the fundamental thing you need to see from this parable, obviously Jesus in the parable is representing himself as the master. First thing you need to know is that the, the master is free. That is to say, God is free to do what God wants to do. God is free from our moral judgments and from our moral constraints. If God wants to give mercy to this manager in a way that we don't think he should, in a way that he doesn't deserve, he's free to do so because he's God. Right? 
The master is free. God does whatever God wants to do, and God always gets his way. This is a kingdom, right? He has absolute power, and he truly demands complete submission to his will on pain of death. I mean, this is not just a, a nightmare scenario, a scenario where there's an absolute authority, submission to his will on pain of death. This is the world we live in. The wages of sin is death. This is the story that we're living inside of. We do have a master with absolute authority. He does have uncompromising standards that he's given us in his law. And yet, this is such good news. Absolute power being given to one person would be horrible news, except if that person was 100% pure in goodness and love and holiness, right? We want a good dictator, right? A good leader, a good authority who will always work everything for the good of his people. That's why it's good news. Only God is the one who wants to do good for all people. Not only that, he's the only one powerful enough to work all things together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purposes. And, and this includes working all of our sin and our selfishness and arrogance and greed and envy and jealousy, all of that stuff that we bring into this world, that he works all of it together for good as well, right? He's the only one who uses absolute authority to set the captives free. That's what Jesus did. He, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and I've come to set the captives free. Human kings, human dictators have to hold people in captivity to their self-interest, right? In service to their lust for power and possession, sending their children off to wars to do their bidding, to rule out of their own petty and sometimes violent desires. But God has no... God, God doesn't need us in the way rulers need troops or rulers need, you know, need special interest groups or whatever. God has no need of us. We are needless to God. And that is wonderful news. Right? It's wonderful news that God doesn't need us because if he doesn't need us, he's free to actually love us. To waste his infinite power on us for our good. He's free to do so, to give us life and blessing and memories and grandchildren and hope and Thanksgiving dinners, but also to let us die. God is free to let all human beings die because we've brought sin into his otherwise perfect world. God is justified in his judgments, blameless in his judgments, as David says in Psalm 51. You alone are blameless in your judgments. And it is appropriate for death to be the consequence of sin in an otherwise perfect world. You see, our, our own, our, what we regard as sin or not, good or evil, Jesus says in, in verse 15 that it's an abomination in the sight of God. You see, why is that so important in addressing this issue where he talks about we see on the surface, but he sees what's in the heart. And what we exalt as good, he sees as a, an abomination. It's because God has a vision for the world. 
And that vision, whatever it looks like, it's his own prerogative. Right? If, if God wants a perfect world with no selfishness, with no greed, with no coveting, and only love, only light, only joy, only peace, it's his prerogative to say to the creatures who brought darkness and death and hostility into that world that you need to die, that we need to die. And I'm saying this as someone who really resists that judgment. I'm no different than you. You see, God had this infinite array of possible visions for us to live in freedom, right? I mean, he's not controlling. He came to set us free. And it was an infinite possibility of futures to live in freedom in God's good world. But, but what happens when we become lawmakers and judges and we start determining what's good, what happens is we bring into God's good world that which is anything but good. And God permits no alternative visions to the world other than his good vision for a world on earth as it is in heaven. God is free to condemn and righteous, I should say, to condemn a world that leads to piles of dead children laid to rest in mounds of chewed up concrete as their fathers continue fighting one another. Those kids caught up in the crossfires of their father's war. Yes, yes, death is the righteous judgment for a world like that. Is it not? A sinful world like that. And, and thank God he is laying us down to rest so that the sin in all of us might die, purge, be purged from us in the fires of death so that when he raises us from the dead, Right, which is no more a miracle than giving us life in the first place. He's just going to do it again, but under different conditions. When he gives us life again, we will be raised into what Paul calls mature humanity. Okay, no more fighting over coloring books in heaven, guys. We will have the wisdom of human history, the knowledge of the Son of God as now members of the family of God, in, in, in memory also of the blood-spattered stains on all of our hands, in this shared guilt that we've all contributed to in an embittered, selfish world. And we'll also have the memory, though, more importantly, most importantly, of the God who entered into the crossfire to end it by shedding blood from his own hands, in commanding the world to stop fighting and start forgiving on a pain of eternal judgment, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father in heaven will forgive you. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. That's the judgment. That's the, that's the law under the new covenant because it's the command of our king. The, the, those who follow Jesus have to stop fighting and have to start forgiving. Unforgiveness in this world is wasted blood, and it's not our blood to waste. Jesus died for the sins of your enemies, for the sins of your spouses, for the sins of your neighbors, and he has already forgiven them. The only thing blocking that, getting to them perhaps, is us and our unforgiveness stonewalling them, building a dam 
that Jesus broke down. So the master's free. God does what he wants. God gets what he wants. And God will have his way. And that's good news because he said, he, what does he want? He wants to work all things together for good. And that's wonderful news. Okay, the manager. The manager. The manager is free too. He's talk, remember the parables to the disciples. And he tells them this parable, the manager. And then the Pharisees attack the, the, the lesson of the, of the parable. But the manager is free from all of the judgments of those Pharisees. Which is to say that we are free from each other's judgments. It's precisely because God alone can judge that we are free from anyone else's judgments. God is free to give mercy on whom he gives mercy. Also free to condemn whom he chooses to condemn. And it turns out that we've all been told, declared the condemnation of this world. And yet he has extended mercy to each. Right? Justice for all, mercy for each. Well, what's justice for all in a world where the wages of sin is death? Right? We're all guilty. But there's mercy for each of us. So if the master chooses to, to dis- say that this unrighteous manager can use un- unrighteous wealth to accomplish God's righteous purposes, then he's free to do so. And why does this matter? And, and to do so in a way that could lead to him being received into eternal, eternal dwellings. And this is wonderful news because I think at bottom, the meaning of this parable, the unjust steward, is that this is not a parable about anyone exceptional or in particular. This is a parable about all of us. Because what is God's claim about this world and about us, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. What does Jesus say at the beginning of the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And if all authority has been given to him, it means no authority has been given to us. Right? So in this parable, all of us really fit the profile of the unjust steward Because who among us really acts like our possessions are ultimately God's possessions? Who really lives like that? Naturally. Maybe you do now. But who's inclined to live like that? Right? Who's inclined to to see that this coloring book is no more mine than it is my sister's because it's all my dad's, you know? And yeah, it's like, the, it's like the older brother. Remember, it's like the older brother who complained about the wastefulness of grace on the, on the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And what did God say to him? All that is mine is yours. It's still mine, but it's also yours. It was fitting that your brother return and that we eat and celebrate. It was fitting. It means that was the right judgment. It's Mercy triumphs over justice in this sense. Not because there's an elimination of justice, which would be an injustice, but because all of our sins have been justified at the cross. All of the punishment that should go to us has been absorbed in Jesus Christ at the cross so that he alone can extend mercy to the world. And we're called to receive it. And that means even this unjust Judge or steward, this unjust manager who mismanages all the master's stuff 
is the kind of person we really do look down on in judgment and scorn. The master is free to say, hey, look, if he used unrighteous wealth, which is to say wealth that doesn't really belong to him, if he used it to actually, if, he's, if, if him getting fired finally turns him away from lust for money to see something that's truly important and not temporary, not temporary treasures, but eternal treasures, how are they found in relationships with people? So be it. That's what he says in the parable, isn't it? He says, hey, look, if, it's, if he's going to use this unrighteous wealth and it's going to help him build relationships, then so be it because those relationships may lead to him being received into eternal dwellings. But he has to first be freed from the idol of his love of money, Pharisees, money-loving Pharisees, right? And, 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 then, and then he can be open to, to entering into this relational exchange because now the manager is in the same predicament as all those debtors, right? Finally, he can empathize with those debtors because he knows what it's like. He's out of luck. He's too weak to dig. He's too ashamed to beg. And so the master says, well, so be it because I will work this together for good, Right? And he can. He uses, do you think he uses everything but your sin to work it together for good for you? He wouldn't have much source material now, would he? Right? He, he works all things together for good so that the relationships that began in an unrighteous way can be redeemed into a righteous and beautiful gift of God. How many relationships do you have like that? <laughs> I, I, I was privileged to baptize my best friend from high school who our relationship was, you know, weed, drink, and cocaine, you know, like, and, and I was privileged and God allowed that tether to unravel for, for so long in my life, so, so deep into the pigsty in my life, and now uh, he, you can just see how he's using all of it for his good. Finally, submitting to his judgments, he uses it all for his good. Like I said, I was able to baptize my best friend from high school, EJ. Because God will use our mixed up sinful work. Like how many of you, this is just a judgment about all of our wealth as Americans but as humans. How many of us have really come to the wealth we have or lack thereof with pure and righteous intentions? 100% pure and righteous intentions. You've never had a mixed motive regarding money. You have covenant eyes on your Amazon shopping cart. Come on. Right? Who among us doesn't have righteous, unrighteous wealth? And yet God says, you all got unrighteous wealth. But you can use it for righteous purposes. This, this, this sin, this idolatry of the heart, you can't serve God in money, but all that unrighteous money you've got, it can be redeemed, right? And so, and so it's, it's God's prerogative. Um, okay. Well, I think we're almost done. We're almost done. We'll end with that. But, uh, but I want to just say... Uh, a couple things about the moralizers and the marriage. And this is where we'll come back next week. Okay? So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave us hanging here. But the moralizers, you need to understand, are captives. 
Okay, and I'm talking about the Pharisees here, the Pharisees. Uh, the master is free, the manager is free, and the master's freedom, right? Can I tell, actually, I'm going to tell you a little story. We're just going to come back completely to this next week. I want to tell you a story. Um, because it's this vision of how you could be free in, in a world of infinite possible goods, okay? Uh, my, and, I, and I'm not claiming this is like from God, but it just happened, okay? The night my grandmother died, the day my grandmother died, I was in, I was in uh, New Zealand, and I couldn't come home, and we got the news, and that night, I had a dream, and in my dream, all I remember is that the phone rang. It was one of those red corded phones with the, you know, twirly line. You got to stay connected to the wall to talk, right? And uh, this red phone rang, and it was my grandmother, and the only thing she said, the only memory I even have of it, is that she said, heaven is, it's so amazing. You can do anything and everything you choose to do is good. You can do anything and everything you choose to do is good. Beautiful, right? I don't know if that was from God or from my grandmother. I don't really believe in that. But, but I think there was a truth in that. That what, what do we have to look forward to in heaven? It's a world where there is only God's will. That's why, guys, heaven is God's throne. There's no throne room in heaven because the throne room is heaven. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Heaven is the place. You tell me if you want to go there still. Heaven is the place where only God's will is done or even can be done, right? And so the moralizers in this in, in this parable, it, these are those who have brought God's vision of the earth as it is in heaven into the courtroom. You see, the Pharisees were constantly guilty of bringing God's judgment under their judgment. The judgment that there should be grace for the sinners and tax collectors Jesus is receiving. They are bringing him into his judgment. And if you think that that is a small sin, there's a straight line from their judgment about his lesson in this parable to the day that they brought him before the actual court and Pilate sat down on an actual judgment seat and Jews and Gentiles together united to condemn the Son of God and crucified him so that all the world's guilt could be rounded up and put in one place for us to see the truth about us and the truth about God. God's judgments are righteous and our judgments are not. And the cross is proof of that. And the resurrection is proof that God doesn't leave us in that truth. But there's a deeper truth. Like C.S. Lewis talks about in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a deeper magic. There's a magic of grace, of life, of resurrection. And so this parable... Remember, he says in verse 14 to the moralizers that they ridiculed him. And then he says that you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. See, this parable was not intended to reveal something good or bad about the unjust manager. It was intended to reveal something evil in the human heart as we judged the master in the parable. Because all are guilty of the same self-justifying judgments that, that lead us to hate the manager because of the mercy he's received. See, that's what we hate about this parable. 
right? It's not the debts that were slashed. We all want, I mean, we'd love for some manager to come around slashing debts like Oprah hands out gifts at our shows, right? You know, you, right? But it, it's the mercy that the master gave to the, to the manager, right? We want him to be punished. And so, so uh, the moralizers are the ones who are held captive in their judgments. And, and, and God's word just says to all of us, let God be true and every man a liar. He will be justified in his judgments and blameless. His judgments will be bla- are blameless in the end. And so we'll come back to all this next week. Oh, no, it did that thing. We'll come back to this next week. Uh, let me just say this so I don't leave you, <clears throat> so I don't leave you hanging uh, about that, what it says, the ex-marrieds. Remember, this is Jesus saying, everyone who divorces wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband also commits adultery. The point that ties all this together is that God's law is uncompromising, uncompromising. He says that the law and the prophets were until John, he says that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, why, why is this so important? This, is, this wraps it all up, okay? Then we'll come back to this, like I said, next week. Remember in the, and I'm, I feel like I especially don't want to leave it hanging because there's a lot of divorced and remarried married people in the church, in this church, in every church. But what Jesus is saying is that Remember, he's talking to men in this context. Because if you're a woman under the Mosaic law, you couldn't get a divorce even if you wanted to. And what had happened by the first century is that there was a provision in the law under Deuteronomy 24, chapter 24, that spoke to the issue of if a woman is divorced by her husband and then another man marries her, and then the first man wants to marry her back. There's a law concerning that very specific scenario. And what had happened in their, in the typical interpretation of the law that permitted divorce is that Deuteronomy 24.1 was treated like a no-fault divorce policy for men. Women had no rights here. And so he's talking to this group of men who took God's word and put it it through their self-justifying hearts and minds and led to a situation that left a bunch of men vulnerable, women vulnerable, and men free to dispose of them as they will. And so what he's doing is saying that all that stuff you've been saying about Deuteronomy, here's the law, here's the Torah. This is what it was from the beginning, as he'll say later in the gospel. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And that means our artificial separations are just that, artificial. And so if you get remarried after you've been divorced, obviously God's got an issue now because he's free to say, I'm the one who joined it together, which means it's permanent. And yet here two people are splitting up. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So what does he do? He just states the thing like it is. If you're remarried, you're guilty of adultery. But... Who among us isn't guilty of something? Who among us has not found ourselves into a, in a situation, relation or otherwise, where we have to say, this is a mess that's really not going to be fixed until Jesus comes back. 
That is the best of family, is it not? In our relationships, right? But, but so just as I talked about in my, my uncle in last week's sermon, or a few sermons ago, who took me in. This was, we call him Step Uncle Eddie. I never really, we don't mean it, but he re, he's a, he, my aunt was divorced and they got remarried. And God used that marriage so redemptively. Just like he uses, our, he uses our unrighteous wealth redemptively, he uses our unrighteous marriages redemptively, and the master's free to give grace to all of us despite the fact that we're all guilty under the law. But the law doesn't compromise. Sin at least deserves the dignity to be named properly, right? So that when we're resentful or greedy or covetous toward our neighbor, spouse, family member, or otherwise, we don't just brush it away and justify ourselves, rationalize all of our judgments in our hearts. What we do is, beloved, get off the throne. And we say, we agree with your judgment. No one is righteous. No, not one. Not only that, it's not just that we're transgressors. We're lawbreakers. We're lawmakers. And therefore, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah 64. God is right and righteous in all his judgments. We are unrighteous in all of ours. Let's today, in our hearts, as Peter says, step off the throne. How do we do that? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Stand up, stand with me. And we we will pray for God to help us. You know, We don't want to get off the throne of our hearts where we feel entitled like we have a right to holding people in contempt, to hold grudges, to have an an attitude of resentment. We don't want God to take over that space. But there's only freedom by giving him that space on the throne. Freedom, you're captive if you don't let him on the throne. You're captive to your judgments, to your bitterness, to your unforgiveness, resentfulness. You can be free. So, Father, we, we ask you to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. And we ask, Lord, not just for the, the strength, really, but maybe the brokenness. You say a broken and contrite heart is a sacrifice that's pleasing to you. So, If we need our hearts broken, break them, we pray, Lord. Take your rightful place on the throne and call us to do your will. A beautiful vision of living lives of love and forgiveness and grace and boldness and courage as witnesses of Jesus to this world. It's in his name we pray, amen. As we go uh, this week, just put before us all to cultivate a vision of a throne you know there are thrones throughout scripture and descriptions of God's throne and like the psalmist heaven is my throne the earth is my footstool let the nations tremble before the throne right or the great white throne in Revelation 20 and final judgment a terrifying scene it would be terrifying except that God gave us his name for his throne in light of the gospel. And this is the calling for all of us this week to go boldly to the throne of grace. That's the name of God's throne.
Go boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy to find help in time of need. Go to that throne this week and lead others with you in Jesus' name. Amen.